Today is lesson four in our current Sunday morning teaching series, Revolution, Christ Over Culture. We're looking at the New Testament story of the book of Acts, which, uh, in, count, in which we encounter an incredible historical uh, uh, experience, if you will, of the early church shortly after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus. Now, so far in this series thus far, we have uh, seen a smorgasbord of incredible, miraculous events that these disciples, these followers of Jesus, had experienced personally. And we talked in the introductory lesson and in part one, lesson one of this series, about how that before around the 16th chapter, Luke was writing not out of his own experience, but out of what he had picked up through the stories of others. Because Luke didn't really come in to the, onto the scene of the book of Acts until around the 16th and 17th chapters when he joined forces with the Apostle Paul. But Luke was so moved by the communication of this experience, of these many experiences of these young believers, that he found it necessary to include these incredible, miraculous events and experiences. Now thus far, as we are wrapping up the second chapter this morning of the book of Acts, it seems as if these, uh, these events have somehow uh, culminated or commenced around the day of Pentecost. Last Sunday in Acts chapter 2, we saw that they were gathered, 120 of them, in the upper room, Perhaps the same place where they had celebrated the Last Supper with Jesus. And they're gathered there together. And on the day of Pentecost, which was the feast that commemorated the giving of the law, which was 50 days after Passover, which meant Jesus walked with his disciples for 40 days after his crucifixion and resurrection, after his resurrection, of course. And then 10 days transpired from Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where Jesus ascends to heaven, to Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully arrived. And this feast, and if, if you weren't here last Sunday, I encourage you to go to our YouTube, cha YouTube channel, uh, our Facebook page, our website, or perhaps our app, and listen to last Sunday's lesson as we examined the incredible significance of the day of Pentecost and how that it was commemorating exactly what it was commemorating, which was the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments as we call them, and how that that event brought about disobedience and that disobedience brought about the death of 3,000 but that in Jesus' ascension in his disappearance, if you will, his followers were rather obedient. And because of their obedience and because of their outspokenness of his truth, then 3,000 souls were saved. And we begin to see here an incredible revelation of the character of God. But that experience was not only the birthday of the church, as we call it, but it was absolutely transforming for those 120 believers that were gathered together there in that upper room. And I know when when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to incredible church experience, when it comes to great worship experiences, we tend to interpret in our mind based on what we have experienced, where a worship makes you feel good, and, and man, you just knew God's presence was there, and you knew He was with you, and then you walked out, and you went and had lunch at the Mexican restaurant, and you went home and took a nap, and you went on about your daily life. 
This was not at all what happened in Acts chapter 2. It was so transforming that even the word they, T-H-E-Y, no longer means in the book of Acts what it meant in the beginning of the second chapter. Let me present this to you. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that they were gathered in the upper room when the day of Pentecost had fully come. The they that is included there is roughly 120 believers. By the time that we begin to wrap up the second chapter, in verse 37, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 42, where we'll begin this morning, we see another reference to they. But this they far outweighs the they of Acts chapter 2 verse 1. They is no longer 120 believers who had walked with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. But they now includes a number that is at least 3,120 people, many of whom had just experienced a new birth that very same day. The post-Pentecost experience was absolutely transforming to their lives. And I don't know about you, but I find myself in this place today in my life personally where I'm, I'm really not any longer interested in a church experience that makes me feel good. But rather, I'm interested in a church experience, in a Jesus experience that transforms who I am, that transforms who you are. And we can come to church and we can just hope for an experience that makes us feel good, but yet we leave here with our, our souls dying, with our marriages crumbling, with our lives completely hopeless, and with our distance from God growing further and further every single day. But none of these things could describe nor explain the experience that those 120 had on the day of Pentecost and how it morphed into to now 3,120 plus. The post-experience, the post-Pentecost experience was one that was absolutely transforming. Let's read about it today, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone continued to feel a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and their possessions. And they were sharing them with everyone as anyone may have need. Day by day they continued with one mind in the temple. And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, each and every single day, those who were being saved. It's as if this sum of incredible events that seemed to culminate on the day of Pentecost had given birth to a unity that was otherwise unprecedented to the divided Jewish culture of the first century. You've heard me talk about this so much that, that the Jewish culture of the first century that Jesus was born into was incredibly broken and it was divided. Judaism was divided essentially into four different groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, 
Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And they all had entirely different ideas of how God was going to fix their situation and redeem the nation of Israel. And all of these different ideas caused division and division and division. And we today can identify politically the division that exists within our nation and even the division that exists within our churches based upon denominationalism, based upon doctrine, based upon preferences, and based even sadly upon race. This experience that they had with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 was absolutely transforming if for no other reason because it gave birth to a unity that was otherwise unprecedented in this incredibly divided culture. This presentation that we see here in these six short verses of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through verse 47. This presentation is one that only God himself could have ordained. You see what we see happening here. We see that unity that is so powerful. And I'm not, I'm not going to jump ahead of myself, but a unity that was so powerful that people begin to sell the things they had that they didn't need so that everyone else could continue to live a unity that was so powerful that they did not merely meet together on Sunday morning and speak and say hello how are you have you had a good week or perhaps not even speak at all but a unity that was so powerful that every single day they were together every single day they were in the temple every single day they were breaking bread and having their meals and there's an important differentiation there we're going to discuss later every single day their goal in life was to be more like this Jesus whom they had followed. There was an atmosphere of excitement. The scripture told us in that second verse we read together that everyone was continually in awe. Now how do you go from a, a, a Messiah who doesn't do the intended or the perceived work of the Messiah in taking over the Roman government, but rather is crucified by the Romans, and who is buried, and then who is uh, uh, resurrected, and then all of a sudden he's ascended, and then they, they don't know where their leaders went, and now they're trying to figure out what to do. And it's just like, what in the world is going on? And Jesus had said, just wait here in Jerusalem until I do what I want to do through you and for you and in you. And so they're just kind of hanging out. And all of a sudden they have this incredible experience. And now after this experience, their lives have been totally, completely transformed. They're just all fitly combined together in a work greater than themselves. It was as if God had worked a puzzle from the many pieces of these differing lives of these believers. And God had put together in this puzzle the portrayal, the presentation, if you will, for what His desire for His people would be. Now, I believe this morning, if we were to use this as the presentation of God's blueprint for the New Testament church, I feel as if, sadly, that it differs greatly from how our churches would appear today in America especially. And in this study, my goal is not that we just learn principles from the book of Acts, but rather that we begin to not only identify but experience that godly, divine, heavenly blueprint for us 
the New Testament church. You see, I believe that although history has, has transpired, although technology has changed, and although times have certainly transformed, I believe that God's blueprint for the church is the same today as it was in the book of Acts. And this presentation that is being made for us is worthy of our investigation. So what exactly was going on here in the working of this puzzle, in this divinely assembled compilation of pieces, none of which look the same. Some would speculate that this was merely a presentation of communism because all of the believers were living together. They were all hanging out together in Jerusalem. And they were all selling the stuff they didn't need so that they could fund the work of the kingdom. And everybody was just in community. Some would speculate this was somehow a biblical endorsement of communism. That God was saying, I want everybody to not have everything that is anything that is their own, but everything that they have belongs to everyone else. In the Old Testament, there's a doctrine known as tithing where uh, God's people would give the first 10% of their income to the work of the temple. And in the New Testament, that, that doctrine is not necessarily dissolved, but it is rather fulfilled with the concept that God does not own 10% of what you have, but rather God owns everything that you have. If we were to conceptualize this working of these divinely of this divinely inspired process of the working of this puzzle of God putting together all of these little pieces that otherwise were broken and were separated. It is our greatest hope that we, like them, would have the same experience. I think there are four things that are happening here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 that are noteworthy, that led to the working, the divine assembly of this puzzle. And not only that, but were experiences that were had because of that divine work. First of all, I believe we see the concept of continual devotion. Did you notice that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we are, we, we, we are right after the experience of Pentecost, where 3,000 people get saved. And we're told immediately they continued devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This term, continually devoted, in the original Greek language is one word, and that one word is proskatureo. Proskatureo is very interesting because it means to be all the time in one place. Kind of like someone who would say, I'm a native of Lincoln County. I'm a native of Stanford, Kentucky. I've spent my entire life in the same place. That's proskatureo. And this is the word that is used by Luke to describe the lives of these early believers. Not that they were all necessarily hanging out at Jerusalem, which they were. And we'll get into that momentarily. But rather, I believe the dynamic that is being presented, that is being pushed in front of us, is the dynamic that says all of these brothers and sisters were continually together in their mind. This word also means to be constantly 
ready. Like the Minutemen of the story of the Revolutionary War, constantly ready. They're always on their heels, ready to go. This is the terminology that is used to describe the devotion of these believers. Now let me ask you this question. Is this the type of devotion that we typically experience within the American church today? Or do we have to beg and plead and beg and plead and beg and plead to get someone to help with this or someone to help with that? Would you sign up for this Bible study? Would you help with Kids Church? Would you jump on board with this new idea that we have? We miss the concept of continual devotion. I will share with you personally that I've been convicted of this. If I may be transparent, typically Mondays are my day off from church. Most of the time it's the only break I get. And for years gone by, if, if, if there would have been a men's group on a Monday evening, I would have totally not even considered being a part of it. Now, that's not something I'm proud of, but it was something that I could justify in my mind by saying, Lord, you want me to rest, right? It's your idea that I rest because I don't get to rest on Sunday and Saturday like everyone else does. So, God, I've got to have that Monday. And the Holy Spirit began convicting me because, of course, our associate pastor, discipleship pastor, had to choose Monday night for the men's gathering. And I... (laughs) I came last Monday night, and I was so thankful. I was not downtrodden. I was not, and and I had several reasons I could have been. I was not discouraged. I was not aggravated. But I left here in an attitude of gratitude. Many times we write off the concept of continual devotion. God, I'm not going to be devoted. I'm not going to be committed because I just can't do that, Lord. It's just frustrating that you think I should be involved in this and that they want me to do this and this and this. And it just becomes a habit and it means nothing. And God, I don't really want to do that. Can I present to you that it's that very mentality that robs us of the incredible unity that's presented in the book of Acts. I mean, we're presented with this unity where the brothers and sisters loved each other so much. If they found out one was in need, yes, I've got all this junk in my garage that I don't need. Let me sell it on Facebook Marketplace and I will give you the money free and clear. It's all yours. Have it. This was the unity the togetherness that they lived in, that they experienced. And yet we question ourselves today. God, why do we not experience a similar unity? Father, why is it that we do not, uh, that, that we can't describe our relationship with our fellow brothers and sisters in the same manner that was described in the book of Acts? As a matter of fact, I wonder this morning how many of us even know the name of everyone that we worship with in church on Sunday. Remember the puzzle that I presented to you earlier? That I wanted to illustrate what God was doing here with these early believers. We wonder so many times why we don't experience that same divine working as if God has just pieced us together with everyone here in this incredible dynamic way. But yet we're all together. We're not fit together. 
It's similar to putting all the pieces. This is the same identical puzzle that has worked here before you. It's similar to putting all the pieces together in one location and thinking this is the finished product. What is the difference between this and this? It is nothing more than a lack of proper connection. It's a segregation, it's a division, if you will, that prevents this from looking like this. And this morning I want to present to you that perhaps one of the reasons why we do not experience the same unity, the same togetherness that the believers experienced in Acts chapter 1, 2, and so on is because we live our own personal lives with the same agenda of division. How many of you will think differently of yourself when you walk to work in the morning? When you're going through the parking lot, you've gotten out of your vehicle and you're going to go into the factory, you're going to go into the office, you're going to hop on the tractor or whatever it is that you do for a living. But your mindset's not where it is today where you were thinking of, I'm a believer, I'm a, I'm a child of God, I've been redeemed, He loved me so much that He gave His only life for me. If our individual lives are segregated and, and one of those segregations, one of those divisions is the Christian us and then we have the Monday us and the Tuesday us and the work us and the married us and the husband us and the son or daughter us or the wife us. And we think that all of those other little pieces can be separate from the Christian us. And it's our very attitude that feeds division within the body of Christ. We must embrace the concept of continual devotion. I believe this was fundamental, it was paramount to their unified experience, the fact that they were completely, totally devoted, proskatureo, all in the same place, for the same reason. Secondly, the scripture tells us what they were continually, continually devoted to. The first thing that it mentions to us is that they were continually devoted to the teaching or the doctrine of the apostles. Now this doctrine or this teaching was absolutely revolutionary in its nature. Right? There was no other teaching, there was no other division or sect of Judaism that was presenting the same principles that the apostles were. You had the Pharisees who were capitalizing on the law and hoping for the resurrection. Then you had the Sadducees who were likewise capitalizing on the law, but they didn't believe in a resurrection. As you know, that's why they were so sad you see. The Sadducees. That was so incredibly funny, wasn't it? Then you had the Zealots who could basically care less about keeping the law. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. But their passion was to overthrow the Romans. They were ready. They were locked and loaded and armed. And they were ready to go just the moment that they were told to go to battle. And then you had the Essenes who were basically uh, the pacifists, if you will. And you can see all the different ideologies that Judaism was entangled with. And none of those were the type of teaching or the type of doctrine that the followers of Jesus... 
the fact that the scripture says they were continually devoted to the apostles' doctrine was a revolutionary statement of their own personal interest and submission in this revolution. Let me take it a moment, a, a step further. Let me take it a step further and say that by Luke determining that these Jewish men and women, these 3,120 plus, had completely devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, that meant something else. It meant that they had completely, entirely renounced who they used to be. They were done with it. They were done with Judaism and its division. They were done with all of this. And now they had found the Messiah. They had renounced their former life. And I love what we're told in Acts chapter 2 verse 43. That there was a continual sense of awe. Everyone continued to have a sense of awe. It never got old. It never became stale. It never needed the dust brushed off of it because they were continually devoted to the concept of this apostolic doctrine, this doctrine of the apostles, which was absolutely revolutionary. May we fall so deeply in love with Jesus. May we experience Him in such a dynamic manner that we can say in all truth and honesty, he never gets old to me. The third thing that we're told they're committed to, or that they did, the third concept, is the concept of fellowship. So we have the concept of continual devotion, the concept of the apostles' doctrine and teaching, and the concept of fellowship. Now I have noticed in the recent months post-reopening after the pandemic that there's been something within our church that's been greatly missed by many. You know how the scripture talks about breaking bread here in Acts chapter 2, right? There's some of you that love to break a certain type of bread that's loaded with sugar, has chocolate on the top, and a hole in the middle that you can see through. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And we used to break bread in that manner every Sunday morning before church in our church cafe. And I don't know about you, but I can't even eat the donuts on my, uh, with, with my food allergy issues that I have. But I would love to see that re-implemented in the very near future. Because I think that more than what we need, uh, more than how much we need the donuts, the coffee, or the breakfast, we need that time with one another. But here's the misconception. Fellowship is not merely enjoying a donut and a cup of coffee with some guy or gal that you go to church with. That's not at all what is presented for us here, especially when we look at this text in an exegetical light. When we look at this text in an exegetical light, it gets incredible. I told my wife this yesterday. I said I could do an entire lesson on this one Greek word and still not even begin to scratch the surface. Here, that in, uh, here in verse 42, the word that's translated fellowship is one of the most incredible, intriguing words in classic Greek, in my opinion. This one's probably a close second to the word hamartia that Paul uses to describe sin, which means to miss the mark, which tells us so much about how God views our carnal nature. But this word here that's translated fellowship in the Greek is koinonia. And koinonia means, it has such an incredible in-depth meaning. I'm going to try to summarize it and conceptualize it as best I can. But it means to share intimately in participation of the same thing. 
Here are some other words with which it is used to de- that are used to describe its meaning. The word fellowship, association, community, communion, joint participation, even intimacy and intercourse is translated from this word. The share which one has in any investment, fellowship, intimacy, the right hand as a sign of a pledge or a fellowship in fulfilling one's role. A gift that is jointly contributed, a collection, a contribution, something that exhibits an embodiment and a proof of togetherness or fellowship, koinonia. Luke is not presenting here for us that the disciples just hung out and went fishing together and ate donuts together and had supper together. But he's presenting for us that they were intimately intertwined by their faith in the Lord Jesus. It was not merely that they were in the same place, but it was, geographically speaking, but but simply that they were in the same place spiritually. You see, geographically, geographic communion only produces this. But to be in the same place spiritually, we experience this. And I ask you this morning, what do you want out of church? What do you want out of your walk with God? What do you want out of your relationship with Jesus? Are you okay with this? Or do you want to be part of something that only the creator of the heaven and the earth could have pieced together through the sacrificial death of his son Jesus? The necessary linkage that we need to connect us to each other doesn't come through our own effort. But rather, it comes through only what He can do. The fourth and final thing that we're given, the fourth and final concept that we're given in the 42nd verse to describe what these believers were doing that produced or was an effect, I guess you could say, from this experience and this unity was their commitment to communion and prayer. The Scripture tells us in verse 42 that they were committed to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, pastor, how do we know that this comment about breaking bread is not just a reference to eating donuts and coffee on Sunday morning in the Journey Cafe before church begins? If we read the remainder of this text, which we already did, it's actually, uh, it's actually interpreted for us right before our very eyes in the, 26, in the 46th verse. For it says, day by day they continued with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And then it differentiates that they were also taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. The taking of meals was what was necessary to physical sustenance, but the breaking of bread was the observation of the Lord's Supper, that last and final experience that they had had with Him before His crucifixion. You know, I would imagine that the Lord's Supper for those early believers was much like this past year when my wife and I celebrated our 18-year 
wedding anniversary and we were at the beach and she went out to the beach early to watch the sunrise and I had intentionally stayed back so I could, uh, you know, make the traditional romantic sweet Facebook post, but she didn't know that. She thought I was just being lazy and didn't want to get up and go watch the sunrise over the beach. And so I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the wedding picture and how incredibly beautiful she is. And, and I was the polar opposite. Man, you think I'm ugly without hair. You should have seen me with hair, 120 pounds soaking wet and glasses bigger than my forehead. I mean, it looked like she was doing charity work. You know, God had to have, God had to have just blinded her eyes temporarily, or at least temporarily. And I'm going to sidetrack myself in a moment. But I begin to look back and I begin to think about, you know, look at what we committed to versus what we experienced. We didn't have a clue what we were getting ourselves into. We were just kids. I was 19 and she was 30. I mean, uh, 20. She was 20. I was 19. Let's get that one right. And we had no clue. We knew we were going into ministry together. I was already a pastor for, for a couple of short months at that point in time. But we had no earthly idea. We'd really signed up for this. I think that's how these believers saw communion. I believe that's why they were repetitively, almost on a daily basis, observing the Lord's Supper together because they were like, guys, can you believe we sat with him the night before his crucifixion and he said, this is my body and this bread that would be broken for you. And we didn't understand it. And this cup is my blood which would be shed for the remission of sins. And we did not comprehend it, but now we're beginning. To see it and through that recognition, perhaps they were saying we recognize, we know that we don't fully understand what he is doing here today. But just as we didn't understand that final Passover meal, we don't understand this. And just as we saw that he had something greater planned for that, he had something greater planned for this. It was a regular symbolic reminder. Of the, early, of the believer's greatest objective. It was a regular symbolic reminder of the believer's greatest objective. I'll make a confession to you this morning. I hate working puzzles. I despise it. My daughter, when we brought her home from China, one of the first things she fell in love with, besides playing Uno, was working puzzles. And she worked this puzzle for me on this cookie sheet this morning so I could present it to you in the form of a lesson illustration. But one thing I do know about working puzzles is you don't get from this to this without some type of a guide to go by to tell you what the finished product should look like. The same is the case with our lives as believers. I believe those early believers, they saw that communion as a, as a powerful reminder, a regular symbolic reminder of the believer's greatest objective. What is, what is that picture for us? What is that picture on the front of that puzzle box that shows us what we're working towards? That picture is Jesus himself. Paul said it like this. He said, my brothers, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, I, I, I set behind me what's behind me, and I press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
Sometimes we need a reminder of the picture that's on the front of our spiritual puzzle box. We need to be reminded what it is that we're trying to look like. What it, who it is we're called to act like. It's a greater calling than a political agenda. It's a greater calling than a platform for our own personal opinions and preferences. But it is a calling. It says, Lord, let me reflect to this broken world who you are. Summing together the concept of continual devotion, of commitment to the apostles' doctrine and teaching, to a commitment to koinonia fellowship, intimately intertwined. And a commitment to the concept of communion and prayer produced something incredible. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, I thought you said this was the result of something incredible. It was, but it also produced something incredible. You see, Christianity is centrifugal in that manner that it builds off of force and produces more force. And it's contagious more so than any disease known in history. When it's done with the biblical blueprint. Look how Acts chapter 2 is summed up. Verse 47, they were praising God. And they were having favor with all the people. This is noteworthy at this point in time. And this is really a side note. But it's noteworthy because Luke is making a declaration here that they had not yet really faced persecution. Sure, some people on the day of Pentecost accused them of being drunk. But they'd not really faced persecution. They were still seen in a positive manner. They had favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were stuck in the middle of an otherwise hopeless nation. But somehow they had found hope in Jesus. And they suddenly became sold out to that hope in Jesus. That suddenly became not just a weekly experience for them, but it became a personal endeavor to which they were totally committed. They had invested themselves totally. And because of that total investment, God had begun to intimately intertwine them into the lives of other believers. And from that union, from that uh, combination, they begin to grow and grow and grow because God says, this is what my people should look like. This is what my plan for humanity was. And little did they know that everyone around them was craving this in a manner like they didn't even realize themselves. People began to flock to this movement. They began to flock to these brothers and sisters. They began to flock to this, this experience of unity in an otherwise divided culture. They began to flock to this experience of hope in an otherwise dim, dark, hopeless Helpless culture. And I believe this morning that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God said in the book of Malachi, I am the Lord and I change not. Just as Jesus was all of those things for the Israelites at that point in time in Acts chapter 2 verse 47, He is the same for our society today. We are the conduits. We are the presentation. We are the puzzle pieces, if you will. When are we going to begin to say, Lord, put me together?
mold me, shape me, intimately intertwine me into the body of Christ. And God, let me be a channel, a presentation of hope for someone else. That's my message to you this morning. Do we want to merely just be thrown, puzzle pieces thrown into one geographical location together? Or are we going to say, God, work us together for the good of your purpose? Would you stand as we pray together this morning? Father, we are thankful for your word.